As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt. We're sorry it's been a while since our last episode, but we have an exciting one for you today which we're sure you will enjoy. Last week, John's new book, The Robot Will See You Now, was published. It's a multi-author volume he has co-edited with the theologian Stephen Williams. They've gathered an array of other theologians, academics, thinkers and writers to explore how upcoming advances in robotics and artificial intelligence will revolutionise society, affecting everything from healthcare to employment, art to sex. And, perhaps more critically, they've been writing about how we as Christians can engage with and respond to these developments in cutting-edge and often unsettling technology. In today's episode, we're really pleased to be inviting on our first ever guest, Nathan Maladin, to Matters of Life and Death. Nathan is a researcher with the religion think tank Theos, and has also written a chapter for The Robot Will See You Now. With his insight, we're going to spend the next 45 minutes or so exploring the world of robotics and AI in general, but in particular looking at his focus in the book, which is surveillance capitalism. It's a fascinating discussion on an often overlooked topic, so let's get into it. Well, hello. Uh, welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Uh, welcome, as always, to John. Thanks for joining us. But we're particularly welcome for the first time ever on the podcast. We've got a guest, uh, Nathan Maladin. Uh, Nathan, do you want to quickly introduce yourself before I talk about what we're going to be discussing today? Uh, yes. Thanks very much for having me. I'm um, I'm a senior researcher at Theos, the Christian think tank. I'm originally from Romania, uh, and I've been living in London with my wife for the past eight years and in the last uh, three four years I've been quite interested in looking at ethics of technology and specifically AI and and I guess that's the main reason I'm on this podcast at this point. That's exactly right it's a little bit of a clue from Nathan uh, today was really exciting um, because John is uh, just published today this very day 15th of July as we record uh, his latest book which is a co-edited book with Stephen Williams it's called The Robot Will See You Now um, John, do you want to explain what the book is about and, and where the whole idea came from in the first place? Yeah, so it's, it's a fantastic experience um, when you actually get the physical copy because uh, I've had the, the onerous job of, of working on this book for, for several years. It's actually the first multi-author book that I've edited and I didn't really quite realise how much work was involved in being an editor but uh, at long last, we now have, it's being published today by SPCK. Um, I've been co-editing it with my friend, Stephen Williams. 
and uh, it's at the, it's the outcome of a research project which uh, I initially started back 2015 um, at the Faraday Institute in Cambridge um, when I was leading a research project called Being Human in an Age of Nearly Human Machines. And uh, I, I've been fascinated about the, uh, the whole question of artificial intelligence and its um, implications for what it means to be human uh, for a number of years. And so uh, as part of this project, the idea was to have a number of workshops and interviews with a whole range of people, but particularly with theologians, philosophers, and people coming from a, uh, and Christian professionals, uh, technology professionals, uh, in order to try and think about, about some of the um, some of the fundamental issues, and 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 this book is really a product of that. Most of the people who are, are authors actually uh, came to some of the workshops, including Nathan, and um, they've all been beavering away, uh, writing different chapters, and uh, yeah, and so. I'm really quite nervous, but uh, excited to see what the response will be to this new book. And and why this topic in, in particular? You said it's something you've been thinking about for a long time. Some people might be thinking, what on earth has Christianity, the church, ethics got to do with some obscure kind of tech research, mostly based on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean? Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, I've been interested in medical ethics, um, and a lot of that came out of my practical experience working as a paediatrician and a neonatologist. And, uh, and the way that tech, as technology advances, it raises new and challenging ethical questions. And one of the fundamental ideas, I, I think, is that as technology advances, it keeps asking afresh the question of what it means to be human. And... That was something that came out time and time again from the kind of bioethics, the biotechnology world. And increasingly, I thought that the, as these, this question of what it means to be human in the face of technology, that, that AI was the next challenge that was coming down the line, that as AI advanced, again, it would be raising this age-old question, what does it mean to be human? And so... That's the reason I've been watching this field and and uh, fascinated by it, and and that's really been the focus of, of this of this book. What does it mean to be human when we're in a world which is surrounded by intelligent machines? And Nathan, what about you? How did you first get interested in in researching this particular field, this intersection of technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, and Christianity? Well, yeah, my background is in, in theology, systematic theology, but I've always been very curious about all sorts of issues, particularly how to think Christianly about um, uh, pressing issues in the wider culture, how to bridge kind of uh, the world of the church and theological reflection and um, big ideas and developments in, in the culture. So through my work at Theos, um, I began to see lots of uh, articles about various uh, new developments in robotics and didn't really see a lot of um, ethical reflection, asking kind of the deeper questions about the meaning of these developments for human relationships, for the wider society. So it just became more and more interested to to get at these more fundamental, deeper philosophical questions. And um, 
I guess just naturally began to to apply my um, my uh, just my Christian mind to to these questions. Had the opportunity to work on on a project looking at the big tech sector as a whole and and scrutinize it ethically um, and see what kinds of um, opportunities investors have to to shape uh, the behaviors of these uh, big corporations uh, in light of growing awareness of the the impacts of the ramifications of particularly social media but increasingly just a wider network of of um, of corporations using data um, so I had the opportunity to work on that uh, then um, John and uh, Stephen kindly pulled me into this project, which um, sits behind the book that is uh, coming out today, and uh, just carried on working on these uh, issues. And we're hoping to do even more work within Theos on on the many topics that actually uh, come under AI, and really trying to to reflect Christianly in a robust and informed way. Um, on on these specific developments and on their um, ramifications for for the way we see ourselves, for the way we relate to one another, for the shape of our politics, and so on. Mm. sounds really interesting these workshops where you're pulling in theologians and computer scientists and academics and thinkers and writers were there kind of common themes that came out when you were getting these kind of big brains to 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 get around a table and talk about their own theological reflections on on ai and robotics i mean what was interesting to me was to initially it was quite hard work to get to find theologians who were prepared to engage seriously with these topics, which which quite surprised me in a way. But I, I rapidly came to the conclusion that actually it was very unfashionable. Certainly when we started the project, it was very unfashionable to uh, for theologians to engage with these kind of issues. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting how there are fashions in all things and, and there are fashions in theology and applied theology. And... Uh, Paradoxically, there was quite a lot of work going on about transhumanism, about human enhancement. There was even work going on about alien civilizations and alien intelligences, but virtually no serious um, theological uh, reflection about about artificial intelligence. And I was quite puzzled why that was. But and I'm to be honest, I'm still slightly puzzled. But I, I was very grateful when Stephen Williams, who's a, a, a um, very well-established systematic theologian and, and Robert Song, professor of theology in Durham, both of whom friends of mine agreed to be part of the project and therefore they gave it a kind of theological heavyweight um, aspect, which I was very grateful for. Hmm. Um, it's fascinating when I'm just looking down the, the kind of chapter headings of, of the book. It's, it spans an enormous range of ideas from, you know, science fiction and uh, medicine um, humanity, sex bots, uh, the future of work and employment, health and social care, artistic creation, surveillance capitalism. 
it's enormous it almost touches every area of society did you see any kind of main themes emerging when you were editing the book together and, and trying to draw some of these all these different authors chapters into a kind of coherent whole were there were there common threads that you were able to pull together yes there were and uh but but you're right i mean the very enormous range itself is, is both fascinating and challenging uh but also it, it's part of the problem about trying to f- identify common themes. Uh, certainly, you know, as I had expected, one of the common themes was is about uh, what it means to be human. And uh, related to that is the particular Christian understanding of the image of God. You know, in Latin, the Imago Dei. Uh, it's Orthodox Christianity has always seen that as being a fundamental part of our understanding um, about what it means to be human but then the, the different you know the subtly different understandings of what that means interestingly lead to different uh, re- responses to artificial intelligence so, so that was one of the themes that came out and another theme which I have always been fascinated by and which was did come up a number of times and that is this whole thing about simulation you know how and and the fact that theologically there's been very little reflection about about how we think about a simulated human um and yet that does seem to me a really important theme uh, which did come out several times hmm. and and when you um when you took dwelling in particular on that question of, of kind of humanity and personhood which does seem to be this this repeated theme did you come do did you or did the authors does the book come to a conclusion about um how how we should think about kind of like quasi-human uh artificial kind of intelligences you know this is obviously comes up in in film and in um in fiction all the time you know in a future world where humans can create machines or software which can perfectly mimic humanness what is it how do we distinctive is there an is there a, is there a simple answer to that question of what christians should do about this question of humanity and personhood and well, surprise, surprise, the, the short answer is no, there isn't a simple uh, <laughs> response. But I, I think there are, um, I mean, I think all the authors of the book are aware and concerned about potential threats of, um, you know, of artificial intelligence being viewed as uh, a sort of competitors to to humankind. That So... So I, d- I think I think all the authors would would be concerned and, and critical, uh, but again, there's a sort of interesting uh, distinctions, which which in some senses is, is revealed by these two heavyweight theologians, Stephen Williams on the one hand, Robert Song on the other, in that Stephen Williams would would, I mean, to to to, to very much simplify his position, but he would basically, I think and is arguing that there is something so-called essentialist about the way that human beings are created, which no machine can ever uh, challenge. And therefore, uh, we it's simply not possible for a machine to be, um, uh, to be like a human being simply because of the way that human beings are created and the way that machines are constructed. Then they're, they're fundamentally different in their nature. Robert Songwood tends to take a, a different view, which says that the image of God is is more to do with how we are, what we are called, our calling, 
to be and therefore that we shouldn't be threatened by uh, as machines become more and more capable. I mean, it's a bit like his response would say that, that we shouldn't have like a, a kind of God of the gaps theology, which emphasizes all the different things about human beings. So that every time um, machines develop some new um, ability, we shouldn't say, oh, this is threatening me as a human being. Um, what instead, what we should see is that human beings have a unique calling, a unique vocation given by God. So it's not so much it doesn't come from the essential way in which you're created. It comes from the fact of our unique calling that's been given to us. So so I think that is a, an important and, and, and interesting debate. And, and it obviously has implications because I think that someone who takes the theological position that Robert Song takes would is... Is, is would be less hostile to the idea that we might expect machines to take on more of what traditionally human beings have done. It sounds really interesting, kind of two ends of the spectrum or, or two approaches to this question. I know, Nathan, it's not the thrust of, of your contribution to The Robot Will See You Now, but I wondered if you had a view on, or do you follow Williams or Song on that line in particular? Yeah, I was thinking you know, while John was kind of synthesizing those two approaches, um, whether they are that different, in fact, if you if you look close enough. Um, the way I know Stephen would put it, and I actually I would align myself with that, is that we are, yes, essentially, fundamentally related at the level of our very being to God. We are fundamentally in relationship with to God. And when I say we, I mean every human being. Um, so in a sense, I think he's making a, a, a fundamental philosophical point that whatever um, new capabilities uh, machines develop, they can't threaten the human uniqueness if we define it in this essential relatedness to God. Um, <clears throat> I think what is interesting is to see, okay, so what does that then lead you in terms of how you respond to practical developments and to robots becoming smarter and smarter and threatening uh, to take our jobs and to alter the way we relate to one another. And I think um, they would, Robert and, and Stephen would probably be um, similarly concerned about some of these developments, even if fundamentally and philosophically human uniqueness is not is, is threatened. Uh, but I do wonder if if Robert's position, which uh, highlights calling, doesn't lead to a kind of a functionalist understanding of the image of God, which basically says, well, we have a particular function as human beings in God's creation, and that's what distinguishes us from other creatures. And if it does, if, if this is how we parse it out, then, then robots could potentially do those functions in some ways, even better than, than we would. So at that point, I think you'd have to again reassess, okay, so what makes this um, unique? But for me, I, I think fundamentally, this is how I would say, we are just by virtue of being born into the world, we are already um, inescapably in relation to, to God. And therefore our creations, our uh, what we make, what uh, robots kind of can be, can we, we can we can conjure up cannot be 
in fundamental relationship with God because they are our creations and what we create cannot be fundamentally related to us. They they are distinct from us. Whereas I think, you know, because God is Christians would would say and not just Christians in fact, uh the ground of being, the source of all being, um, there's therefore a, a a fundamental distinction between we as human beings and whatever we create. However intelligent and capable those um creations are um mm. and i guess this would be a good opportunity to talk about intelligence and how we define that that that's very interesting to me mm. so so to kind of try and and sum up if i'm hearing you right it seems like you're suggesting that even if in a future world we were able to construct machines which were f- like functionally identical internally and externally they thought like us they felt like us they were better than us at everything that we do as humans because they're not made of the image of god and they cannot be in relationship with him in the same way that we can our humanness is is, un- is unthreatened and our uniqueness above all the rest of created order is unthreatened yes but again this is <laughs> this is uh, a very fairly subtle but I think important point but um, this shouldn't make us complacent I mean I, we, I don't think we should simply then okay because this is the case if, if we believe this is the case therefore we should just uh, sit back and relax and let the tech giants because they're the ones uh, driving this innovation uh, let them develop these um, robots and these powerful systems I think there are other concerns, and I think John's already mentioned them, um, simulation and therefore increasing capacity for deception and for kind of dispersed deception, not simply like me wanting to deceive you, but just us completely losing a uh, grasp of what is what is real, what is uh, the truth of any given matter. So I think there are all sorts of concerns that uh, everyone should have and Christians should have in particular given the the story they they inhabit the the gospel of of the kingdom um so what i'm saying is whatever we decide on how we conceive of the image of god in a in a abstract philosophical point uh point of view that shouldn't make us complacent as to the concrete challenges that are kind of coming up, coming down the tracks, which raise profound ethical questions which should be answered um, carefully. Let's move from philosophy to ethics then, John. Uh, could you spell out maybe a handful of, of particular issues that, that come out in the, in the book that you think Christians need to be thinking about, maybe concerned about, rather than these kind of abstruse ideas about human uniqueness and the image of God? Yes, and um, I, I think uh, certainly the, the book highlights an, a number of, of real concerns. I mean, employment and the implications of um artificial intelligence systems uh, increasingly taking over um the jobs which previously human beings have have under have undergone i think that that is a very real uh ethical issue and 
what's it very interesting is that whereas in previous industrial revolutions it, it was the sort of the muscle jobs the the, the jobs that were involved a great deal of physical labor um, and that were dirty and repetitive and so on those very physical jobs which machinery tended to be able to take over uh, now increasingly what's happening is that is that it's uh, it's cognitive jobs jobs that re require human intelligence um, that are that are under threat and that includes many jobs which previously could be done by professionals of, of one kind or another and um, so, so I think the whole question of employment um, and the implications of people losing jobs and um, being replaced by technology, that's certainly one. Um, there's a whole chapter about uh, sex, uh, sex robots and sex technology and the way uh, the implications that that's having on, on, on human relationships. Um, I wrote a chapter about healthcare and the way the implications for um, replacing uh, human uh, carers, human physicians and so on with automated uh, smartphone based apps for instance for mental health care, for um, uh, caring for elderly people and so on um, and uh, some fascinating uh, work which Andrzej Czekanek did on, on questions of whether artificial intelligence could be genuinely creative and uh, there are increasingly now uh, artificial intelligence systems which can generate music, can, can uh, write poems, can uh, uh, paint pictures and so on and, and so the question is how we think about these systems and, and uh, the implications for human creativity. So a, an extraordinarily wide range of issues. Mm. It's interesting that last point you raised because I think people, certainly people I'm kind of engaging and talking about this with often feel like, you know, yes, the AI is coming for jobs that can be kind of white collar jobs in offices on computers that can be automated away. But it's the the artists and the creatives who are probably most... Uh, safe from that because you know they're doing something that can't be converted into ones and zeros very easily but you'll seem to suggest that actually even even those kind of what we think of as cray human very individualistic very personal roles might also be um be uh, succumb to the uh, the ai apocalypse well certainly i mean there's a commercial interest in this because human artists are extremely expensive and and often unreliable and so just from a sheer sort of capitalist, you know, this enormous emphasis on efficiency, on speed of production, on reliability, uh, all of these things drive uh, towards machinery, which is consistent. And uh, so if a machine, for instance, if we want a soundtrack to a television drama serial, uh, instead of asking a human being to sit at a computer and generate some new music, you know, could an artificial intelligence um, just look at all the previous music that's been produced for a similar scene and, and come up with an original uh, background, in which case um, there are obvious commercial advantages. Hmm. Um, Nathan, we're going to come on to talk in particular about, about your chapter in the book about surveillance capitalism in a moment. But before we do, I wanted to ask, was there any other particular area when you were 
looking at what the other authors have written that really jumped out at you maybe something we haven't mentioned that that you think is something that christians really need to start thinking about sooner rather than later in this area um well my concern and i think it does come through in some of the chapters and i definitely mention it and it's a component of my chapter is really our increasing reliance on algorithms and algorithmic decision making processes and tools uh, and i think this is a a part of ai that um we don't speak enough about and people don't readily imagine this is ai but it is ai and in fact that's the way i kind of begin uh my chapter or our chapter rather uh there's all sorts of ai available embedded in in our um, devices and the phones and um, the Alexa from Amazon and all sorts of spaces and 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 products uh, that have that rely on algorithmic processes which are basically uh, these you know sophisticated tools for for turning through lots of data and lots of data points and they're and, and they're used by all sorts of institutions to make decisions um so in fact this is actually one of the big components of surveillance capitalism and i'm sorry for kind of jumping into that but i i think reliance on algorithmic processes uh is is an area that i think um you know needs much more attention and uh some very very um strong robust responses we're all familiar i think with the idea that algorithms determine you know what video comes up next on youtube or or what 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 we see on our facebook wall but how how can you explain a few ways and how they're present in maybe more subtle ways that we're not familiar with and in services that we might use on a day-to-day basis yeah they're present in um in uh determining insurance premiums um in determining um educational outcomes and and grades uh they're used in, in fact i was just reading an article uh preparing for for this uh, conversation about amazon using um basically completely uh, automating their hr uh department for their flex service which delivers amazon um not prime but now which obviously ballooned during during the pandemic with lots of people just uh, with everyone basically uh, more or less locked in their their homes uh, so the 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 algorithm um, assesses the the CVs that people upload through through a portal uh, it scores the drivers it fires the drivers so there's no no human um, present in this in this loop uh, so the human resources are, are now without humans, basically, to to manage what I think are improperly called resources. Uh, so I think, you know, that that is an example of of Amazon and, and other companies doing this, relying on these very sophisticated tools to automate uh, processes, again, in the drive for efficiency, for convenience, for for maximizing uh, uh, return on investment, et cetera, et cetera. So that is, you know, um, something I'd throw out there. Mm.
I think that leads us quite nicely on to surveillance capitalism, which is the the topic of your and Stephen Williams' chapter in The Robot Will See You Now. Um, before we before we discuss the kind of main thrust of the argument and the, and the discussion that you make, could you give us a, a a quick definition of the phrase surveillance capitalism and tell us where it came from? Yeah, well, it's it's uh, generally associated with uh, with a, a book, uh, a significant book that's come out um, two three years ago by a Harvard professor called Shoshana Zuboff, um, and it's called the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, now it's it's likely that the phrase was used before, but I think she is now uh, the person most commonly associated with surveillance capitalism. So what is surveillance capitalism? Well, I I kind of uh, dread the thought of trying to define it uh, very briefly. But, well, the clue's in the name, really. Um, you've got capitalism, uh, especially kind of the, the kind of capitalism, the kind of market economy and the kinds of... Uh, objectives pursued, which is maximizing shareholder profit. Um, and then you've got surveillance, uh, which is um, really to do with the capabilities provided now by digital technology and other forms of technology to, to, uh, to track, to harvest data from uh, devices, from surfaces, from what we post online, from um, our movements, and um, to aggregate all of these uh, data points into vast um, uh, data sets, which are then analyzed with the use of powerful AIs, powerful tools, um, chief uh, among them being sort of machine learning and uh, deep learning, which I won't go into the details of. Basically, it's about creating very sophisticated models and predictions of uh, human behavior. Um, so this the system is basically monetizing this data that um, uh, particularly social media companies, but increasingly other companies are harvesting. So you have this vast network of, of uh, data brokers, which just uh, um, cart data from, from, from place to place and, and sell it to various people, primarily to advertisers, which target you um, in a very, very uh, pointed way based on the inferences that have been uh, made and predictions of what you might want to purchase or what uh, you might want to... Um, to see to see next uh so it's basically it's basically an, an an entire system built around uh personalized targeted advert advertising it's not just social media it's extending as i said to other sectors um and the fundamental problem is that it's fundamentally opaque you you really don't know what information is being collected what information is being derived from that about you uh, and it, it just it creates all sorts of problems and I, I sense from the way you talk about it and that that you're potentially quite critical of surveillance capitalism could you explain why you think christians should be concerned about the rise of this form of technology and how it's kind of pervading the internet, our devices, and, and the cloud and everything else? 
Well, the way I think about it is is actually in terms of power, right? Power is an ambivalent, uh, complicated uh, notion, but at the end of the day, what we what we have in a surveillance uh, system in a surveillance economy is very few people, very powerful corporations, a handful of them, that have enormous power. Um, and as, as Christians who read uh, our Old Testament and our New Testament, you, you look at the Old Testament, you have so many checks and balances, so many laws and regulations to protect against this concentration of of power into the hands of the few. Um, so I think this is the fundamental problem with the current kind of surveillance capitalist system. You have so much power accruing to uh, so few people. So therefore, th this raises huge questions for, for democracy, for uh, human relationships, because it, can, it perpetuates all sorts of um, inequalities and, and um, and harms to to already uh, disadvantaged, uh, vulnerable groups. So they're unaccountable, largely. Although obviously governments are kind of picking up and on on the fact that these powers need uh, some some uh, accountability, and they're clamping down in some some respects. Um, so yes, power has to be has to be. Uh, interrogated, scrutinized, and uh, and better ways of 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 uh, governing our um, our our world, where data plays such an important part, have to be found. John, do you share Nathan's concerns? Yeah, I do. I I think, um, and I very strongly recommend uh, Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's it's a big doorstopper of a book and quite heavy going in some ways but it's absolutely an extraordinary work of investigative journalism really of, of, of working out precisely what these massive companies Google Facebook Microsoft and so on were up to and how their business model worked and, it, and it's really very chilling um, and there's another aspect which uh, in addition to what Nathan has said which I, I thoroughly agree with and that is that uh, these companies have worked out techniques of behavior modification. In other words, it's, they're not just monitoring us. Uh, they're actually changing our behavior, modifying our behavior in order to maximize their profits. But they're doing this in, a, in an incredibly sophisticated and covert way so that we're not aware of it. And, and their aim is to make us addicted to the technology and make us addicted to their websites, make us addicted to certain clicking certain buttons because that will maximize their profits. I mean, and you only have to look at how, how successful that's been, for instance, in making people addicted to smartphones, making them addicted to um, particular websites, social media, whatever it is. Um, and this has not an accident. It's not an accident that the smartphone has become utterly irreplaceable in our lives. This is, this is part of a very sophisticated um, campaign using um, the hidden means of behavior modification it's, it's fascinating point that that one because I was just reading the other the other day maybe a day or two ago an article from the states maybe in the Washington Post uh, which was talking about uh, the role that Facebook has in kind of boosting a lot of the very kind of dangerous 
far right wing kind of populist um, pro Trump insurrectionist kind of content which flourishes there, and that actually after the after the election in November last year, the American presidential election, Facebook actually kind of dialed down some of the virality and the other kind of things to to just prevent some of this content from spreading uh, because they were worried that, you know, it was literally going to burst out into violence as it sadly did, as we know, in the capital. Um, but they've since kind of re- returned to it, which is concerning in itself. But what is amazing to me is that, you know, executives at Facebook, this single unaccountable company, actually have the power by changing various parts of the the algorithms that run Facebook's recommendations and groups and and sharing and all that kind of stuff. They can actually make people angrier or less angry, you know, more misinformed or more informed. They can boost truthful sources of information or they can boost kind of angry populist ranting. And that's just a remarkable ability for any private firm to have over you know, something like a third of the world's population now live on Facebook. Yeah, and, and it's based on a uh, a whole discipline, a sort of secret discipline. I mean, it's not secret. There are, but if you do are prepared to trawl around, you can find it. But it's it's basically called social physics. And the idea has been to, to work out the... Um, the laws which govern human relationships very much like the laws which govern physics, you know. And then once you work those out, of course, the idea is now we've got hold of the levers. Now, using our technology, we can manipulate people, manipulate relationships. Um, and, I mean, in the West, all this technology is orientated towards capitalism, towards maximising shareholder value, as Nathan says. Of course... Very, very similar technology is available to totalitarian governments, particularly China, but other other totalitarian governments. And they're using it not to maximise uh, their profits, but to ob- obtain social control. But it, it, in, in the same way, they've got their hands on the levers and they can control millions and millions of their population. And Nathan, do you draw any kind of conclusions in your chapter about what we as Christians should do about this? I mean, should we all be opting out of big tech's products? Should we be deleting our Facebook accounts, junking our iPhones? Or is there some kind of middle ground form of civil disobedience we can do while maintain, more kind of retaining a foot in this modern techno-capitalist world that we all live in? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one because we you know we're all kind of implicated and uh, as... as John and you were saying, uh, we're, we're not talking about kind of a discrete place or activity, you know, okay, we, we pick up the phone and now we're dealing with uh, surveillance capitalism and then we put the phone down. And so it's, it's kind of hard to completely check out. And I think that would be um, in, in some way irresponsible. We have to be present uh, as, as Christians, but we have to set boundaries. We have to be aware um of of um of harms even subtle harms and we should protect our privacy actually i i think to go back to what john was was saying earlier i do agree i think christians have uh been late and are risk being late again um at this you know conversation about the ethics of of ai and i'm we're hoping that the book will in fact uh catalyze uh, a conversation but in fact, there's a lot of, of really good work being done by all sorts of AI ethics groups and privacy um, um, advocacy groups. And and they keep coming back to, you know, how do we protect our privacy? And I think we, we should be more concerned about our privacy. Um, 
and should learn, uh, you know, what is being done with with our data, um, and therefore, yes, use browsers and devices that are more privacy secure. Uh, I think that's something we we should uh, we should do. I think we should. Um, yeah, uh, use better better browsers, not not use Google, <laughs> um, and and other kind of alternatives to 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 the to the tech giants. I think that's really hard because we, obviously there's so many people who are on these platforms and we'd have to make some sacrifices. But you know, some sacrifices uh, are I think uh, necessary. So I think yeah, just to to summarize, um, not completely checking out, but setting boundaries, uh, really living out our our convictions about how we are uh, we should be looking out for the most vulnerable uh, among us and we shall be, be always be concerned not primarily about convenience and maximizing easy uh, and easiness uh, but really um, looking at the effects on the the least and the and the lost and the um, yeah well, I certainly agree with that. You know that that um, we 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 must be most concerned for those who are vulnerable, and, and I think another approach which I'm very keen to try and promote is what's often called harm minimization, and, and this is an approach which doctors, for instance, have pioneered for many years to do with drug addicts. You know, obviously, the best thing for a drug addict is to get them off their heroin completely, but we've also recognised that just taking uh, steps to minimize the harm being done to an addict is in itself valuable. And so things like giving clean needles and syringes and offering methadone or oral methadone rather than uh, heroin, it, it has some value. And in the same way, uh, it might be the ideal thing that we all lose our addiction to technology and, and, um, but in reality, that's not going to happen. What we can do is try and minimise the harm. And so, for instance, I think that, you know, if we if you remember the there was a whole lot of concern about fixed odds betting terminals, which were where people could bet uh, huge sums of money and win huge sums of money and just got trapped into this addictive behaviour. And in many ways, you know, the smartphone and social media sites are, are very similar to a fixed odds betting terminal and uh, one of the approaches the government took was to reduce the reward that you could get the maximum sum from a hundred pounds to two pounds uh, which dramatically reduced the addictive potential and and the question would be is is there another is there a similar kind of approach that the government could enforce in order to reduce the addictive potential of these sites and of this technology I don't know. Do you have, do you have a thought, any thoughts on that particular question, Nathan? Um, well, it, it's yeah, it's it's complex. Uh, I agree in principle because you know we 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 can't fabricate uh, a paradise, and I guess, in a sense, um, a, a Christian view of of um, the end times uh, eschatology is actually helpful because it gives you just that kind of tension between uh, not trying to achieve perfection here. Uh, while also not being again complacent and and um, harms minimization is a good principle to follow when you realize yeah you can't uh, you know bring new creation through policy and uh, regulation but you can you can actually uh, make 
the system better, safer, fairer, um, and and uh, move move towards democratic governance of of such data rather than these massive monopolies uh, that have been created. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm in principle, uh, in, you know, I'm in agreement with that. Lastly, then, before we wrap up, I wanted to talk briefly about what the kind of wider church does with this information, not just about surveillance capitalism, but about this whole topic of AI and robotics in general. Um, I, I know you both are very passionate and you've kind of explained why you think this is a really critical issue. I'm totally persuaded. But but if you were just an ordinary lay Christian or a church leader, what do we do with this? Is this something that we should be preaching about? Should people be hearing about this in the pew? Should we be doing it bible studies um or is this going to be ultimately left to kind of ethicists uh computer scientists experts like yourselves well i mean if i can jump in there i i think sadly this is where the uh leadership of the church um both at a local level and and to be honest at a at a national level is way behind where many of the flock are i mean you know i'm I know that many ordinary Christians uh, are are concerned about these issues because they see it every day. They they're aware of it. They see their children engaging with this technology. You know, they they worry about the Alexa that they keep talking to and the hold it seems to have over the family. And so they're keen to discuss these issues. I, I think, sadly, uh, for whatever reason, most of the church leadership just doesn't see it as important. Um, and uh, one of the things we've talked about before is is this seeming obsession that that so much of um, the church leadership has at the moment about, about sex. You know that that as though sexual issues, you know, dealing with questions about same sex attraction, about gender in church, about transgender issues, about sexual promiscuity, as though these are really the only or the major ethical issues of our time. And and I, I think, yes, of course these issues are important, but I think they shouldn't be allowed to displace some of these other issues, which actually are, are, are far more pervasive and, and, and potentially uh, extremely damaging. So, so I do hope and, and pray that this issue, these issues will rise up the agenda of course, I sympathise with with preachers and church leaders who are, who who must feel there's a tsunami of issues coming at them. You know, and how on earth can they be an expert on all these things? And of course, the answer is they can't be an expert, and they shouldn't try to be an expert. What they should be doing is is looking for people within the Christian uh, congregations, within the Christian world, who who do have some expertise in this issue, because you know God has His people in all these different spheres, and 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 we should be using them in order to try and understand the times we live in and and learn how to respond and just finally then nathan do, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic when you consider the future of how this conversation is going in the church do you think that there are people kind of waking up there these concerns that you've been thinking about researching raising or do you think we've got a way to go before ai is anywhere near kind of top of people's agenda I am hopeful, um, which I think is um, better than optimistic or, or 
pessimistic. I'm hopeful that this book and um, and other other key Christian leaders that I that I am aware of are able to <clears throat> to um, find uh, people around them and congregations and church networks uh, that can um, <clears throat> engage with these with with these issues. Um, I don't think it's too late, um, and I think if we if we manage to to show that this is something that they they people ordinary people bump into or participate uh, whether they're aware of it or or not, um, and show the importance of of uh, engaging with these um, with these things, I think that we have we have a chance to to. Um, to not just sleepwalk into another major revolution uh, without having the proper um, response. Brilliant. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we've got for today. Thanks so much to Nathan and to John, as always, for taking part. It's been a really fascinating conversation, and I hope it was interesting to those of you listening at home. Um, we'll be back as soon as we can with another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Uh, but it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from them as too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Matters of Life and Death. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to find out more about John and Nathan's book, The Robot Will See You Now, including where you can pre-order it in either paperback or as an ebook, please click on the link in the podcast notes for this episode. I'd also like to personally apologise for changing the music for the last episode of the podcast. Your feedback has been heard and received. The old music is back and I definitely won't be fiddling with it again, I promise. Thank you also to everyone who filled in the short listener survey as well. Your feedback is really helpful in ensuring matters of life and death is as useful to you all as it can be. As always, any other questions, suggestions or comments can be sent to mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>